Cole. You're listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exist to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is to create a resource for Pilina or connection to place, and Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. Uh, aloha kako o wau o nanea loko inoa no papaleo wahu mai au. Uh, ma kikapu a me wichita. Hello everyone, my name is Nanea Lo and I come from Papakaleo Wahu and I'm now residing in Kukapu and Wichita land or known today as Dallas, Texas. And mahalo nui for everyone joining us on another episode of Native Stories. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Courtney Gusick. This is a part of Native Stories um, COVID-19 series and this series highlights community work within the Hawaiian Kingdom. So Courtney founded Pahiki Eco Caskets, and it's an eco-conscious casket company in Waimanalo, Hawaii. Um, After a deeply moving and educational experience accompanying her dad as he passed, she has since devoted the last decade of facilitating environmental stewardship in death care. Um, She is devoted to solving critical sustainability issues in the end-of-life space. And Courtney earned a bachelor's degree from American University and a master's in arts from Brandeis University in Sustainable International Development. So welcome, Courtney and Pahiki Eco Caskets. We are so happy to have you on. Can you share with us your story, uh, where do you live, and your connection to that aina, and maybe share share with our listeners about um, how you got into, quote-unquote, end-of-life space kind of work? Yeah. So when I was young and growing up, we were living in Oregon at the time. My dad's family way back originally is from the big island from Javi. I currently live in Uanu and our shop is in Waimanalo. And I really started this journey um, kind of growing Pahiki from this sort of, not sort of, very um, intimate experience we had with my dad when he was in his end of life stages. We about nine years ago, had found out that my dad had late stage pancreatic cancer. And by the time we actually became aware of it, the writing was really on the wall. And we really understood and started to move into a new space as a family where we were navigating and accepting kind of simultaneously this new reality with him. And it was really the first time in any of our lives that we had experienced death, especially so close. And when we were kind of making our way to the later stages um, of his life and kind of planning through the really practical aspects of it, it was my dad's wish to be buried. So we knew that from at the outset that we were, you know, looking for a casket, looking for a plot, looking for um, something that would really just be a beautiful, appropriate burial for him. And the closer we got to the space and the more we started kind of researching it, we really quickly realized that, Everything that was being offered in funeral homes or in any kind of really traditional capacity was made from a lot of materials that are absolutely not biodegradable. Uh, Most of the caskets are like a very cheap kind of 18 gauge steel or the ones that are wood were actually plywood with a wood veneer, um, highly lacquered, had a lot of hardware and metalwork on them. Um, They were beautiful, 
you know, the caskets are these beautiful kind of furniture looking pieces that seem like they belong in your living room for 10 years, not in the ground. And when we really started thinking through, you know, what is not only what is important to my dad and our family in terms of his actual wishes, which again was to be buried, but, but what does that mean? And if we really think and believe that he is returning to the earth, well, what does it mean for the vessel that he's in then? Shouldn't that vessel also be capable of returning to the earth in just as seamless of a fashion as his body is? So we kind of came to this kind of quiet conclusion in our family that it really just wasn't appropriate. There really wasn't something there that reflected the life of our family and my dad and our values, more importantly, of recycling and composting and, you know, um, just being very conscientious about the earth, growing so much of our own food and raising our animals and just imagining putting our dad in something that was impervious, like steel and putting him into the earth. Just Uh didn't feel like there was any continuity there between his life and the way his life was ending. So we had set out to find something that was biodegradable. That was kind of just the, the baseline. And interestingly, my dad and my parents are living in Oregon and one of the neighbors that they had in um, sisters, Oregon, where they lived very, very small town, but it just so happened that one of the neighbors had a family member pass away really unexpectedly. And through that experience, they came across the federal trade commission's funeral rule, which is the single most important document everybody needs to be reading and get their hands on. Um, And through that, that our neighbor family had learned that you actually have a whole host of rights in the death space. You can bring your own casket. You can, you know, conduct a whole funeral at your house. You don't have to go to a funeral home. You don't have to be embalmed. You can be buried on private property, for example. So they helped us really understand that we had rights. And that was really the first time we had ever even considered that we may have some you know, additional options to a funeral home. So we started searching for, again, something that was just biodegradable, something that was, had as much of an opportunity to seamlessly return to the earth as my dad's body did. Um, And so we kind of Googled around. It was pretty difficult to find, which was a little shocking considering we bury caskets by the millions every year in the U.S. But we actually ended up finding a casket maker in Southern Oregon. He mostly services the Jewish community, which was perfect because it really met the exact same type of standards that we wanted for my dad. You know, a casket that was biodegradable, that didn't have any metal, didn't have any caustic, toxic finish or glues on it. You know, something that would just be a really appropriate vessel for this beautiful body that we were going to return to the earth where it belonged. So that experience really just like cracked open this whole other part of my consciousness that I think was always there to an extent. Um, Meaning I think I always had, you know, a a certain draw and pull to the death space that I wasn't really conscious of. Um, When I was young, I was just very comfortable with death, though I didn't have very many firsthand experiences with it. But I started thinking through that experience, you know, it was such a privilege to have my dad die at home. And it was such a privilege to have the time we did to really think through and talk about what we wanted. Um, but what about all the families that don't have that? And what about deaths that are very sudden and very unexpected? You know, what do those families have any time or opportunity to, you know, go and research like we did and look for an alternative? Um 
And the answer quickly became no. You know, there aren't really any other conspicuous places that people can get biodegradable options, certainly not in most funeral homes in the U.S. So I had kind of decided in my mind at that time that at some future point when I had enough resources and enough bandwidth that I would create a simple eco-friendly casket company, something that was abiding by the same principles that were important to our family that are, um, you know, scalable across different states and regions and countries and places and something that was just very simple and very um, kind of, I mean, really native to the earth. Um, Obviously, in this case, native not being any specific kind of group or location, but something that was came from Mama Earth and we could easily return back to her without any sort of um, harm or embarrassment about what we were putting in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, I've had this idea in my mind for about nine years now since my dad passed away. And it was only about three years ago that I finally had what I really saw was my first opportunity to kind of make a beginning for myself and see how far I could get prototyping and see how far I could get trying to secure a really um, local sustainable supply chain. And so about three years ago, when I really wanted to make a beginning for myself, the first thing that I started doing was just thinking of the basic concept itself. What does it take to make a casket? I mean, a casket is essentially just like, it's a nicer looking box. Um, So I went to Home Depot and I just bought a bunch of simple pine lumber, which I knew was imported at the time, but that was okay because I was still in my prototyping phase. And then I actually had taken um, a loan out against my 401k I had at the time. I took a few thousand dollars and I bought a whole bunch of tools that I saw on um, YouTube, actually. (laughs) That was how I learned how to do this. Um, bought Bought a whole tool library for myself and went home and started prototyping. And it took a few weeks and a ton of mistakes and a ton of iterations to actually get surprisingly to a viable box, even like a rough choppy, like super junk looking box took a few weeks for me to do alone in my backyard. But once I got that to a kind of stable working place, I started thinking a little further. Okay. So, you know, technically the constitution of this casket meets the principle in an obvious way, which is, is it biodegradable? Yes. Did it, is it, are, you know, trees native to the earth? Yes. Was it native to our area? No, but it's native to the earth. Can biodegrade? Okay, check. But then I started thinking about, you know, us in Hawaii being the most isolated landmass on earth, the most import dependent of all the states and thinking there has to be a better way to sort of um, get a smaller radius supply chain so that I can still abide by the same principles, but I'm not participating in importing all of this wood from Home Depot, from who even knows where it comes from, probably Wisconsin. And so I started kind of poking around and thinking, I wonder what we do with all the trees we cut down here intentionally. What do arborists do? What if I'm a homeowner and I call and I say, I need this monkey pod removed because it's encroaching on my plumbing system. Where do those trees go? What happens when we're widening the highway for the rail project? Where do those trees go? And and so on and so forth. So I really started thinking more broadly and thinking, I need to figure out where those trees are going. So I did a lot of really nerdy kind of research poking around and found that we actually have several on Oahu at least and several in the state um, sawmills that reclaim the trees. So it turns out when the trees are intentionally removed, um, kind of the 
primary option is to chip them because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of resources and it's very labor intensive to actually mill, you know, these trees down into viable lumber or slabs. So they're actually taken and put through a chipper and then just kind of spread around the forest floor, which is great. Again, they still biodegrade. They're, you know, um, gentle on the earth, but it also made me realize that we had a massive resource. So I started looking around and, um, I found a sawmill in Waimanalo and I just kind of picked a Saturday and decided I was just going to drive out there with my, I don't know, I probably had $800 to my name at the time. (laughs) I figured wood was probably a little more expensive than that, but it was the, it was the making a beginning part. So I went and I connected with one of the sawmills and learned so much about the process and the volume and the capacity and the possibility of sort of scaling this out and using really just entirely locally sourced salvaged trees to actually establish pahiki with. So those seven, I guess, like mills, they just, yeah, they just chip the trees down and that's it? Yeah, they chip the trees or oftentimes like if you're a homeowner and you have an arborist come and remove your tree, you also have to pay a dump fee because they also will literally just take them to the dump and dump them there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because um, when I was at UH Manoa, I took a, a class at um, Kanevai and we were making like a papa kuiai. Mm-hmm. And, and we, one of our tasks was we had to go find our own, you know, wood, lao. Mm-hmm. And so we're like our whole class, and it was like, had to be like 40 people inside. We're like, where do we get cheap or like, you know, we were thinking the same kind of means like, where do we get cheap wood or wood that's from the Aina so that we, you know, we don't like go like waste. And yeah, why would would we go to like Home Depot and stuff like that? And like, literally like our whole class was just like frantic, like for a few weeks, because you have the whole semester to make it. And at the end, like you show it um, and then you get graded. But like, we're like, driving around looking for oh uh, like pieces of wood like yeah. or like trees getting chopped down and like before they're chippered like asking yeah. like, can we take this slab but okay that makes more sense I guess people listening to this podcast, at least you guys know there's mills that you can go to and ask to. Yeah, definitely. We actually had several people over the two years where we were there come in um, specifically for that. But there are about um, five that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, Saw mills of various sizes. Some of them are just like one or two guys and some of them are like much larger operations. Like uh, in Waimea, there's... um, like Kamuela Hardwoods over on Hawaii Island, uh, which is like a very, very large, amazing, wonderful, full suite sawmill in operation. And then there are some kind of smaller ones here as well, where it's just maybe like one, two, three people. Um, but the capacity is huge. You know, if they have the machinery, I mean, they're just like cranking through so much wood. And the amazing thing is part of my logic of thinking of like, okay, you know, can I start pahiki? Can I sustain pahiki? And can it grow if we if we only use our local resources here? 
That was one of the big questions I had for myself. Not that that's the deal end all and not that that's the most important thing or the most, you know, that's not like the highest value you can have as a company by any means. You know, there's a lot of different types of industries we don't have here. So if people want to engage in them, of course, you have to go elsewhere, import things. It's totally understandable. Once I started learning about the volume and the capacity we had here for wood, I started kind of challenging myself of like, okay, um, if we only sell within the state right now, if we just stay in Hawaii right now um, with our sales, whether those are caskets or urns, how far can we actually get never having to ship a single piece of wood in that wasn't grown here? And so far, the answer is zero. We've never had to ship a single plank of wood in here one single time. Um, And it's true that, you know, we definitely have our sites and our plans and kind of active plans on growing in addition to here, not outgrowing here, but definitely growing in addition to here. Um, So when we grow elsewhere, elsewhere, we'll use the same principles we have, which is using the local wood, local resources, especially invasive species like we use Albizia, because for us, that's like our biggest invasive species here. But when we start growing into other states, we'll use their local wood and their salvage trees and whatever is invasive to that region or area or state so that we can really hold to the same principles of of really getting ourselves first and foremost and our communities to understand like how resource rich we actually are. And, you know, it's sometimes it's just a simple fact of we don't really think about or consider or call certain things resources. Like, you know, if you're going to cut a tree down and you don't have a mill or the capacity to actually turn it into something viable, it is, it turns into waste. You know, that makes perfect sense. You know, it's an infrastructure thing. You have to have the infrastructure. So thinking about, you know, just reframing, even reframing the concept of Albizia, which has such a bad rap, you know, the Albizia project at UH has really just like completely transformed our understanding of the wood and its um, capacity and its viability, which has been so exciting. And it was mostly the folks over at the Albizia project that really got us even considering or thinking like, I wonder if we make a casket out of that. I wonder if it's durable enough. And I wonder if, um, you know, we could get enough supply. The answer was yes to all of those questions, <laughs> but really just, um, you know, again, it's, it's so much more than just a product or just a casket. We're really trying to, I mean, no pun intended, but like really grow our roots in our ecosystem here and what's possible here. And, you know, really challenge ourselves to reframe the way we see what's here and what's possible. Um, you know, we're not going to stop importing everything overnight. We're not going to stop importing, you know, a lot of things ever, but what are those kind of really accessible, reasonable kind of adjustments we can make in the way that we're actually producing things or growing things that are much more sustainable and much more endemic or local to kind of our systems here and our needs here. I know. I remember when I found Pahiki on Instagram, I was like, oh my God, this shit is amazing. And like, I don't know if it's like, if I've been following you for that long, like three years, I don't know, but I know it's been a while, but I remember first seeing your thing and I'm like, yes, this is what we need. We need Aloha Aina in the death work space and we need to educate our Lahui and like the community about how important it is to 
return to the Aina even yeah. in the next realm. Yeah. And so I remember, I mean, I still pump out your stuff on my Instagram story and stuff like that because I'm so pumped about it. But, but yeah, I remember like every post, I'm like, repost, repost, repost. Cause I'm like, people need to know about this stuff. And I've seen, um, Fahiki grow and like, yeah, more people get, you know, kind of have a little light bulb go off that like, oh yeah, this is important. And like when my Ohana passes, I would like to see or know what are the options that they have yeah. in the next stage. Yeah. So it's just like, I'm so stoked to have you on, on Native Stories because yeah. I'm like, I've been wanting to like <laughs> chop it up with you and have like this conversation and what better way than to have this platform to share with everyone, you know? Yeah. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate your support and the following along and reposting and inviting me here today. It's super exciting. It's, you know, because we're still a small kind of lean team and mm-hmm. it really grew. Um, I mean, I don't know why I always feel kind of cheesy using the word organic, but it is, it is such a powerful word. And because Pahiki has grown out of an organic experience and kind of an organic desire. And I really think a calling Um, it's, it's been also a really interesting and sort of complex process of how we're growing and kind of how the word spreads or how we're like, quote unquote, marketing, or just really kind of getting a better sense of that in real time all the time, because it isn't, um, it's not a mainstream Instagram account, first of all, to follow. So I extra appreciate your following along. Um, and it also is just, you know, we're really just so generally socialized, to not talk about death for so many Mm -hmm. different reasons, not the least of which is fear. And I think the thing for me that really just motivates me every day is really even examining my own fears about death and my own thoughts and feelings or misconceptions or perceptions of what it is or what it isn't. And examining those, I always have to kind of step back and frame it in my mind and remind myself like one of the main reasons it's so important to help outgrow this death denial culture that we live in, that most of us live in. I mean, unfortunately, no matter what culture or subculture or region or upbringing people have, it's just kind of a general socialization to be, you know, hesitant or fearful of death. But I have to remind myself that our death denial, the consequence of that is this like massive, crass, incredible level of pollution to the earth. And it just is so contrary to the way that almost all of us live our lives or at least aspire to live our lives. So I have to tell myself sometimes, even when I feel fearful of the topic, whether it's personally or if it's a a person I'm talking to who feels really intensely about it. And I just have to kind of recenter myself and remind myself like, this is a conversation about mama earth also. And when we're not animate anymore and we're not in our bodies anymore and we don't need these bodies anymore, it's something that you bestow on the earth. Like you're, you're gifting it back. And I think to myself, like, would I wrap up a bunch of toxins for your birthday and bring them over to your house for you? And then think you're going to feel really stoked when you open this like huge, you know, pile of like old aerosol cans of lacquer and like a bunch of screws and nails that I like wrapped up for your birthday for you. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just think like we we are the we are the birthday gifts. We're the gifts back to the earth and like what does it look like 
when you really love someone? Like, how do you show reverence and respect? And like, what does it look like to gift them something that's dignified? And I just feel like, you know, it's interesting. It's on the one hand, our our death and our mortality is this like incredibly intimate, really specific reality and even experience. But then at the same time, it's also this like very, very general, broad you know, form of social and environmental responsibility too. So it has this really interesting sort of dichotomous reality about it where it's like, it's entirely yours and it's completely yours and it's so personal, but it's actually not at all because once you've already passed, then it becomes what is the condition in which your death you know, is affecting the earth. And if it's affecting the earth negatively, that's part of your legacy also. I know. I think, I think what got me so pumped um, when I found Pahiki at the time was I was personally learning about um, our ancestors and how, yeah, death was, you know, a part of the process and how sacred our kino was and how the process of, yeah, hiding our bones and the Mm -hmm. grieving, like the whole thing was so intimate that I was like, and, you know, me being indoctrinated into this American mindset and then unlearning and learning about my culture, it forced me to kind of, yeah, look it, at life too in my own identity as like, I'm, you know, kind of in between these two worlds. But yeah. I love that Pahiki gives us as quote unquote, like modern day, like 21st century Kanaka um, yeah, that type of dignity kind of going back ancestrally in a way to honor our ancestors and our bodies mm-hmm. that we have been so disconnected from. Yeah. Um, I just uh, interviewed Wahine Hula. She's um, a Wahine from Maui. And so she practices birth work. Um, so this mm-hmm. is a part of the COVID series because we want to, you know, highlight these intricate um personal things that happen in our community that I don't feel like or has it been talked about like yeah I haven't really heard you know what I mean a lot but yeah just like I was talking to her too about how like growing up this way you know like in this kind of dual identities as Kanaka or like indigenous and native peoples like we don't really know until we know and then it's like so powerful you know those narratives getting reintroduced into this 21st century world yes yes one thing that i think about and i think is so fascinating about is specific to burial i i fully understand and support you know there are numerous ways in the end of life space to to care for a body um but just let's say specific to burial something that i think is so fascinating that's totally independent of any sort of like religious beliefs superstition culture like take all of that aside the scientific fact of the body's constitution is a hundred percent consistent across a hundred percent of human beings. And it is like 90% perfect reflection of what the earth is uh, made of as well. So the human constitution of like magnesium and potassium and oxygen, it's, it's almost mirror perfect identical to land. Like, it's just, it's, it's so crazy to me. And again, like stripping all of the beliefs about like 
the why or the how, just getting down to the what, if you just look at the constitution of the human body, it's like almost perfect reflection of the earth. And just thinking like, it's just so phenomenal to me that, you know, we have this, like, we don't even just have an intimate relationship with the earth, but we're actually just like future pieces of land. Mm -hmm. Like we're walking around right now, we're animate, we have these lives, we have this life force in us, but we're actually just future pieces of land, which is just so mind blowing to me. And when I think of it like that, I think, well, that just like, it, it blows my mind, first of all. And then it makes me realize one of the reasons why it's so important, the way we take care of our bodies in this world, what we put in it, what we don't, what we consume, what we, you know, surround ourselves by. One of the reasons why it's so important to really like uphold a high standard of health for your body is because your body is a future piece of land. So an unhealthy body means an unhealthy piece of land, essentially. And conversely, you know, healthy bodies also help produce healthy land. And it's like, it blows my mind. And can I share with you one of my most other mind blowing realizations I had? Yes, please share because it's blowing my mind too. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So again, specific to burial and just, just a really quick caveat. Um, the focus and importance for me. And when I started Pahiki on burial is not, um, like in opposition to cremation or anti-cremation. It's just, I feel like the understanding and the level of education and sort of the distance we've drifted from thinking of ourselves as part of the land, I feel like that's the part that really calls me in the death space is figuring out how to help sort of re-engage and reconnect those two realities. Um, And so that's all to say that it's just specifically of interest to me, not that other methods are not interesting to me or that I don't support them because I absolutely do. So that's just my little disclaimer. Um, But in terms of burials, so one of the things that literally woke me up in the middle of the night last year was I was thinking, I'm never not thinking about burial and I'm never not thinking about the families and the, you know, all the complexities and the feelings and the casket and what we make it out of. And, um, but last year I had this like mind blowing reality and it woke me up, you know, from this like very deep sleep. And I realized that if you think about the spherical nature of our planet and the earth. Okay. So it's this like large round sphere. And you think about the shape of the human body, like just a person standing there and kind of like the contours. Um, I realized that a sperm burrowing into an egg is the exact same like shape and process as a body being buried back into the ground. And I was like, what if that's another form of conception? Like what if that catalyzes this whole other life and in growth. And then I was realizing like, if you're buried unimpeded in the earth, if you're not embalmed, if you didn't put, you know, a bunch of junk in the casket with it, it's like, it does nourish and give life to the earth. Like it's another form of conception. It's so Mm -hmm. crazy. (laughs) Like, yeah. Thinking of it like, and even thinking like before the sperm and the egg unite, they're their own totally separate independent things. They're both alive, but it's only that like actual deep burrowing and union where it's like one of, they like yield themselves to each other and they're both still alive, but in a completely different form. That's just the person after, you know, you don't think of a person as like half sperm and half egg, but that's exactly what the person is. And I'm just like, 
wow what if oh my gosh whole other I, even like I mean it's everything on like a really physical obvious like again the, the shapes of both things is so similar but even the process of like the sperm doesn't just t- like touch the egg and it, it has to burrow like all the way down in it for it to mm-hmm. actually like catalyze this next life crazy it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> that no. is so nuts but i love it i mean like it, yeah. it resonates with me because it's like my mind is blown too yeah as you articulate that to me yeah it's really um it's just it's so fascinating to me and then i think about like if we're oh I, I'll, I'll go too far down the rabbit hole if i start there never mind <laughs> 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 oh my gosh, this is such a good interview. So like, I guess for people kind of wondering how your caskets differentiate from, mm-hmm. you know, those other caskets that you're talking about, could you share with us some information about differences between those two worlds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just speak just to Hawaii for now, but we currently import, aside from our caskets, we import 100% of our caskets that we use here every year. So just to give you a relative sense, about 11,500 people on average die every year here. And 70% of those people are cremated and about 30 are um, full body buried into the ground. So the caskets that are imported here, um, because the cheapest is a really kind of thin, about 18 gauge steel. That's kind of become one of the most common um, caskets used in Hawaii. So one thing that's really fascinating and interesting, uh, if you can even say that about a casket, that we didn't realize at the outset was we think of caskets as just for burial, but actually caskets are for cremation too. Um, You have to be cremated in something, number one. If you don't have a casket, made from wood or a cardboard box that can be incinerated. What families often do when they want to be cremated is they have a viewing beforehand. It's a pretty common practice. You know, the family still wants the closure. They want the time together. They maybe even want to be able to touch the person. So they'll buy uh, one of the steel caskets for the viewing. So viewing is about one to two hours. Um, But unfortunately, you can't burn steel. So what happens to those caskets? And we found out they actually just get scrapped. There are massive dump piles all over the island of these steel caskets that were used for only one or two hours for a viewing before cremation. And then the body itself is placed in usually a rigid cardboard box for the actual cremation. And the steel caskets, because they once had a body in them, they can't be resold or reused. So they're just like these massive languishing piles. And some companies will scrap some of the material off of them, some of the pieces of the hardware or the parts of the steel that are still usable to recycle. Um, But by and large, that doesn't happen. So we have thousands and thousands of caskets every year that we import here um, from Indiana or Texas or China. We use them for an hour and a half and then we dump them um, before cremation. Uh, Many people are also buried in steel caskets here for the same reason. They're extremely cheap, but unfortunately, it's a totally impervious material. You know, the body can never return to the earth and that. Um, And those are also imported. So we craft caskets from 100% salvaged local trees. So, you know, abiding by our um, transparent local Hawaii-only supply chain. And 
and we don't ever poach trees or cut them down intentionally for lumber. And we craft them with wooden dowels. Um, and we're, we've just started using um, just simple dovetail technique to actually join them at the ends. And then there's a little bit of non-toxic wood glue that we use. Um, very minimal and yeah, definitely not toxic. And then we actually just as a liner for the inside of the caskets, we use cotton muslin because muslin is totally biodegradable and we get the unbleached one. So it doesn't have any chemicals or colorant or anything in it. And then um, we just finish it with coconut oil and we cut it with a little bit of beeswax. So we actually, there's a farm um, on Hawaii Island that you get large chunks of beeswax from and we just melt it in with the coconut oil and that's the only way we finish it. So it's totally biodegradable and really just reflects the land that it was literally grown in, which is, it's amazing. And it's it's amazing to see that, again, we're on a smaller scale now that we're growing, that we're able to, you know, manage at least a percentage of the death market here, just with our own local resources without having to import anything. You know, we always kind of um, talk about, you know, what if we ran out of this kind of wood or what if we needed to this and that? Um, And, you know, luckily we haven't come to that point yet, but, you know, even if all the planes and barges and ships and everything stopped sailing and arriving here, we would still be able to make the cast. It's exactly as we do just with the resources that we have here, which is nerdy and exciting. It's we, we geek out about it so much. It's just so awesome to think that this very necessary product, but not just a product, obviously, um, you know, that's universally needed. And, you know, we believe really should be made with a lot of dignity and love and continuity that we're actually able to provide that and to make that just with our resources here. And on a really extra nerdy note, um, because we know the arborists who drop the trees at the sawmills um, and a lot of the sawyers and the people who actually cut the wood, we know where all the trees came from too. That's something that we geek out about a lot is like mm-hmm. always ask where the tree was, you know, grown and raised. And I don't know. I mean, maybe most people don't care, but I think it's just amazing to think like, oh, I, I used to drive past that tree all that I know exactly where they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Being like, um, I just, I love the idea of, the tree being born and raised in the soil here and being buried with a person who was born and raised in the soil here too. And just thinking like what a perfect kind of union that is in the end for them to return back to the earth together. I know. Honestly, like interviewing you right now, it's like so cool because (laughs) if everybody wants to to see what she's talking about, she does post it on her Instagram too. So it's just like, you sharing um, all of your stories, it like is just I'm like thinking about your Instagram posts and everything that I've been following and reading too. And the the casket graveyards blew my mind. Isn't that like, crazy? Yeah, I mean to visually see it too, it's just like oh my gosh. And like I feel like a lot of people too. If you if you live on Oahu or on the other islands and stuff like that, like you gone to certain places where it looks like a dump site because uh-huh. it is a dump site like that's the crazy part it about I don't know like living in Hawaii too that there's so many dump sites yeah in like nice places that shouldn't be polluted and it just blows my mind on how that's like how people or like in, like companies get away with that 
Yeah. So what's so crazy about that is if you took, so those caskets are each about like 140 pounds average between 140 and like the, for the really, really thin steel, um, you know, the really heavy duty ones can be 250 pounds of just steel. So What's so nuts about that is if you if you went home to your mom's house right now and you went in the garage and you found 140 pounds of just like scrap junk there, like old tools she didn't need anymore, like like old huge steel, like construction road signs. Just think of like grabbing a bunch of stuff that's 140 pounds worth of steel and you went out to let's say Mililani somewhere with a shovel and your brothers and you dug a hole and you buried all that stuff in there and the police happened to come by, you get a huge, huge fine for illegal dumping. But if you walk into a funeral home and you pay them $5,000, they'll go bury that 140 pound steel casket for you legally and easily. It's like, yeah. It's so mind blowing to think, you know, because we don't have these conversations enough in society and because we don't have enough opportunities to really like, like express and have true discourse and agree and disagree and learn and like dig together. It's like all of a sudden, you know, these amazing, wonderful human beings and families who are spending their whole lives and you know, so many of their resources trying to protect the land and do right by the land and, you know, be as environmentally conscious as possible, get to the end of life and are the exact same people who are buying those steel caskets, not realizing or thinking through, oh, I wonder what's going to happen to this after the two hour viewing. I know you can't incinerate steel. So what's going to happen? Not even thinking about it. You know, the same people who are like working for these big environmental organizations or the same people who, you know, lived off the land their whole lives by principle with their families are the exact same people. And it's, it's not their, it's not their fault. I mean, it's not, it's not a matter of like, oh, who's to blame for this behavior. It's a collective responsibility that all of us have to really engage and ask questions and help to educate each other, all of us and our families and our communities. And, you know, we just, we have drifted so far away from these conversations that, you know, these incredible, well-meaning people are the ones paying to do this. And that, I mean, that's, it's shocking. I'm, you know, and aside from that, there's actually zero regulation from the EPA in the death space. There's no regulation at all about what can or can't be buried. I mean, embalming fluid is legal, for example. You know, embalmers used to die by the dozens in funeral homes um, because it's it's formaldehyde among other things that they're using. And it's so caustic and it's so toxic. And even now embalming bodies, you have to wear respirators and body coverage for it. And that's, you know, the only function of embalming is to have an open casket viewing for an hour. And then that one hour you're trading for a hundred years of formaldehyde sitting in the earth. (laughs) I mean, it goes into the earth. Yeah. It's really, it's shocking. I think the, I think one of the most impactful aspects of death and dying and something that can really help move the needle significantly is people understanding and knowing the Federal Trade Commission's funeral rule. And you can Google it easily. It's just the FTC funeral rule. Um, we're actually actively working on getting um, a like digital e-handbook online as right. soon as we 
possibly can so that it's free and accessible to every single family. So it's not just listing out what your rights are because it, you know, if you're, especially if you're actively grieving or you sort of have anticipatory grief of knowing something's coming, you're not thinking, you know, of all the practical logistical parts of it. No one is. And that's natural. So having these conversations beforehand and having a handbook in every home where you understand not only, oh, we're allowed to bring our own casket. Um, we're actually going to flesh out and provide like five to seven examples, local examples for every part of the funeral rule. So families understand when it says, oh, you can bring your own casket from any source, you know, without having to pay more and the funeral home has to accept it. And then putting in other options like here's here's how you can make your own casket. You can buy from us. You could order from you know, someone from another island, have them make it for you. Just all the options and opportunities we actually have to give people, you know, because telling people that they have rights is very different than helping people understand how to exercise those rights. Yeah. And thinking of having rights in the death space is like, what didn't even cross anyone's mind? It never crossed my mind until my dad died. And I, I didn't even think of the death space as a consumer space. Mm-hmm, it's, a totally. huge, it's a huge consumer space, but I didn't, you know, you think of yourself as a griever, not a consumer when someone dies, but helping us, helping us help each other all learn and grow and understand before we reach that threshold of someone dying so that we have well-educated, empowered communities that understand you can literally walk into a funeral home anywhere on Oahu tomorrow and tell them, you know, uh, we want to drive the body ourselves in the back of our truck. And you're allowed to do that. It's totally legal. You know, we want to help actually dig the grave. You're allowed to do that. It's legal. You know, we want to bring a casket from Pahiki or as a family, you know what, we made our own and the funeral home hundred percent has to accept it and allow you to legally. And these things are just, they are, they're empowering, they're nourishing. It leaves so much room for so many different cultural practices that get completely washed away in the death space mm-hmm. because we think that there's, there is a very specific way it's done. It's kind of like with weddings, like, you know, you're going to go, you're going to sit split on two sides of the room. They're going to walk down the aisle. The dad's going to be with the girl. The mom's going to be with the groom. They're going to face each other. She's going to be wearing white. He has a tuxedo. You know, it's all, it's kind of all the same thing, but it's like, says who? Whoever told you that that's how weddings are conducted? Whoever told you that's how funerals are conducted? Mm -hmm. You know, because we've kind of defaulted to these things, we don't realize like, we have all the power to go like, absolutely carte blanche, (laughs) buck wild (laughs) in the death space so that it really deeply, beautifully, intimately reflects our culture, our values about the land, our feelings about our community, who that person was in life, who they are in death, and have so much more continuity and so much more of a rich experience there. And I just feel really super excited that I get to be a part of that process. You know, there's so many pathways and so many ways to do this. And we're just, all of us at Pahiki, we're extremely motivated to help people figure out how to, you know, carry out this process and how to navigate this space in a way that's really consistent with who they are and who their families are and in, you know, what their beliefs are. Um, And we can't, we definitely can't do it all. So we're, you know, I really believe deeply in decentralization of power, of education, of information, and of people really seeing themselves, you know, once they're familiar with the funeral rule as, you know, kind of a point of education and empowerment for other people in their communities. Cause it's, 
it's the most amazing <laughs> document. And it really is like somebody's handing you like a master key that really unlocks so many incredible opportunities um, in the death space that, you know, it's like every other major life experience where, you know, the more it's reflective of your values and of your culture and the more it's reflective of you, the more engaging it is, the more enriching it is. And I think particularly for death, the more healing it is when you actually okay. have those points of engagement that are so meaningful. So if you couldn't tell, I'm very excited about <laughs> the role in the Federal Trade Commission. It's also just like so ironic that it's actually the U.S. government that enacted the the funeral rule. And, and plot twist, it's actually the government that's enabling us to have like absolute wide open freedom and autonomy in the death space. We know that's not right. right so it's just super amazing and ironic. <laughs> so like, I mean, have you seen differences since COVID-19 hit? And like, how do you help? Like, are there options that you give people who like affordable options that for people yeah. who can't really afford caskets? Or can you share like, what are the differences? Like, cause I know that caskets cost a lot, but I'm not really, I know I follow you guys, but I forget what is like the median amount of how much like a burial costs or like a casket costs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the steel caskets that I referenced many times, um, those are extremely cheap. I mean, they're, they're cheaply made and the material is cheap. Um, those are about they can run around like $1,600 all the way up to kind of heavier, um, heavier weight steel or other metal types of caskets can be up to $25,000. And then most funeral homes use the same catalogs. There are about three major casket manufacturers that are used across all 50 states. Um, so the, the actual, um, funeral home, the casket catalog that they give you is pretty standardized. Um, and there are some caskets in there that are solid wood, um, like solid mahogany. It could be like seven to $10,000 and it varies from state to state. They also have a large selection of, uh, wood caskets that are actually just plywood with a veneer over the outside of them. So those are cheaper also because they're not pure. Um, we use just pure wood. And pure hardwood. We don't do any sort of veneer combination. And our caskets, um, we started April 1st when COVID was really just, I mean, no one knew what direction it was going to go in, just like no one knows right now what direction it's going to go in. But one thing that we had decided really early on was that, you know, even if families weren't directly affected by COVID, you know, having a family member actually die from it, that the amount of people indirectly affected financially in this time, whether it was from losing their jobs or getting furloughed or um, having a family member die while someone else in the family lost their job or was furloughed. There were just so many different situations where during this time, we knew that funerals and caskets would become even more cost prohibitive for families who were already struggling so what we decided to do early on was April 1st through July 1st, we reduced the price of all of our caskets by $500. So our our lowest cost casket right now is 
um, Norfolk pine, and that's $2,300. And then we have the Albizia caskets that are $3,300. And then monkey pod, which is our um, kind of standard hardwood is $4,300. So at um, non-COVID times during the year, those are, you know, 28, 38, and 48, respectively. But right now we've reduced the price. In fact, we were just kind of talking about it recently. And I think we're probably going to go another three months and just keep the price down um, in that range. Because, you know, even in non-COVID times, think about how many times you've seen GoFundMe being to bury people. And it's, I mean, that is absolutely criminal. And I think it's one of those things we're going to look back on in a hundred years and think like how inhumane it was that people had to do a GoFundMe to bury their parents or their children, no less. And just exactly. Think, yeah. yeah. I know. I, yeah. And I feel like ever since I've, um, honestly, like ever since I started following guys and I see those, you know, GoFundMe's and stuff like that, like I reach out to them and like I refer you guys, um, them to you guys because I'm just oh, like, you know, you. there's options that yeah you like because I can only think about I kind of have the same relationship for me like with death and um I've never been I've never really had like you know how other people react to death in in like a very like you know shocking and emotional way like I've for whatever reason ever since I was little I've always thought of it as like you know a part of life or maybe that's just what my parents told me yeah so it's just like I don't really have an issue reaching out to other people or even like people I don't know because I'm just like if I if I was to go in their shoes and I didn't know about you guys I feel like I would want somebody who did know about alternatives to reach out yeah. to me, you know, in a vulnerable yeah. situation if the if those families didn't have the resources and money to, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have um payment plans also that we do. It's not something that we offer explicitly on our website. We tried to look into there's a few kind of third party apps that do, you know, guaranteed payment plans or like after pay or ways to sort of split up your payments. Um, we looked into those a little more and most of them, the kind of minimum credit score to even get approved for them is actually like what I think it's kind of high. Um, and my logic was like basically we want to make these accessible to anyone and everyone, even if we have to do, you know, a different kind of arrangement than we normally would find. Um, but if we use one of these third party apps and they don't even meet the minimum credit score, it's going to reject them right away. So we just decided we're just going to do case by case basis payment plans. So just so everyone knows, it's definitely available. Um, it's something we've only done a couple of times, but it's absolutely something that we will continue to do and to offer to families and really make it work. Um, I'm also a big fan of bartering. So if you have ahi or something, maybe you want to trade. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, really though, honestly, it's like, because for us, you know, this has a certain value to it, just like what, what you do or where you have to offer you resources, there's a certain value for you. So, you know, if you were a mechanic, for example, and we were in a situation where you couldn't pay for the casket, but I know I can really go to you and trust that, you know, you can fix up to a certain amount of things in my car, for example, that's definitely something we would do. You know, there's, yeah, value is not just like a single amount. It's, it's really like the resources people have and, and what that means to them and what they need. And so, yeah, we're definitely, 
we're definitely open to payment plans. I love that. So here on Native Stories, we like to kind of challenge our listeners to do an action and get involved. Do you have anything that you want to call to action to them after listening to this episode? Definitely. Okay. There are two things. Um, One of them is going to sound really easy and one of them actually is really easy. Okay. So the first thing is... Um, whether it's by yourself or with your partner or with your family or whatever community or group you're comfortable in, Googling the Federal Trade Commission's funeral rule and read over it, even if it's just quietly in your head. Um, If you're feeling even more courageous or kind of open, really just using it to start a conversation within your own family about what are the things that you would want and what does that look like? And why is it important to you, most importantly? And the second part of it is just going a few steps further with it and really starting to think through, you know, say my greatest wish was to be, you know, buried on Hoi Island. So just starting to think through, like, doing a little bit of kind of independent investigation and research of like, what kind of casket would I want? What is that casket made out of? Do we do we bank those here? Are they imported from somewhere? You know, what does it actually take if I did want to be sent over to Hilo to be buried? You know, in terms of the rules, just, you know, not going too far down the rabbit hole, but just really getting into the same habit of exercising those, you know, independent investigation of truth muscles that we all have inside of us mm-hmm. um, and kind of applying the same level of curiosity and rigor to exploring kind of the death space as it relates to our lives, as we do to so many other things we're interested in, in our lifetimes. And just kind of thinking through further down the road of those steps of like, what are the implications of the things I want? You know, it's less important to, um, you know, know all the exact ins and outs and how something's going to work or not work because we're still alive. So it's anyone's guess, but really just doing the due diligence for yourself and for mama earth and realizing and really better understanding what it actually means when we say we want X, whatever that thing is in death, whatever our, our desire is. So one is finding the federal trade commission funeral rule and at least reading through it. And then two is just going a little further and starting to really like critically think and question and better understand our the implications, especially the eco implications of our choices mm-hmm. and the things we really want. Awesome. So you hear that everybody? Get to work. Um, <laughs> so also wrapping it up, how can people get connected to you? Um, do you want to shout out an email, your Instagram handle, Facebook? Yes. Um, we have Instagram. It's at Pahiki Caskets. And then our website is just pahikicaskets.com. We don't have a Facebook, but we try to kind of stay current in terms of education, growth, what we're doing on a given day in the shop on Instagram, and then have our more kind of static information about the caskets, about who we are and where we're located, etc. on our website. Awesome. Um, Hala Nui Courtney from Pahiki Caskets for coming on Native Stories and sharing all of your mo'olalo and what you do. If you all want to further connect with us uh, at Native Stories, please do. You can Facebook search us, 
native stories for daily updates on native kind mail or things or on Instagram too. Um, please download our mobile app for place-based stories, walking tours, and listen to us on all streaming podcast outlets. Search native stories and make sure to share us to all of your ohana and friends um and native stories prides ourselves in being your resource and the more you share the more our native and indigenous knowledges and truth are told so sending plenty of aloha to you all out there and mahalo for tuning in